millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Hopefully you're all managing as well as possible in these strangest of times. Now my guest today is Eddie Hobbs. Go back a few years and Eddie was a regular presence across the media. Not so much in recent years and we'll talk about that later. As most of you will know, his forte is financial management, particularly in respect to personal finances. And for a while back there, he was something of a consumer's champion. But Eddie, of course, has experience right across the financial sector. And recently, in the Irish Examiner, he set out his thoughts on how we're all going to emerge from the current crisis. My own read of the piece that Eddie wrote is that maybe we're all up the proverbial creek without a paddle. Eddie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. So, as I say, the picture you paint, Eddie, on what awaits us in the far side of the lockdown is pretty pessimistic. So could I flip it around and start by asking, have we any reasons at all to be cheerful? Well, well, we do, of course. Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll get through all this. But the reason I wrote the piece, Mick, was because at that stage, really, uh, especially during March, there was practically nobody joining the dots on the economic consequences of COVID-19. And um, and there was this prevailing view that it would be all over in a couple of weeks and we'll be back to business as usual after, you know, the shock of all of the layoffs and so on. And uh, and that just simply wasn't hanging together. So um, I, I sat and wrote that piece because that's what I do. I mean, that's my job to join the connections and and, and lay it out as best I could. Um, and uh, ironically, that was published on Easter Monday, although I, I wrote about a week before that. Uh, uh, the IMF then came out with their findings a few days later and they had completely flipped around from like a half percent cut in global growth to like minus three percent in a matter of a month. So um, really, uh, the the all of the global economic models, all of the forecasting, uh, all of that had to be completely thrown in the bin um, in order to try and get our hands around this. But what is very like what, like what the, the hope side of it is uh, that the I mean, the, this, this huge hole has opened up in the global economy, um, the Irish economy, the regional economy in Europe, the global economy. And, and, and the size of that hole is, is $20 million, which is the equivalent of around, I suppose, 18, 18, 18 trillion euros. But we'll just talk in dollar terms. And um, like that, there's a, there's, a, there's a thousand billion in a trillion. So, um, so you're talking about 20,000 billion of lost money just gone you cannot just off a cliff edge and and that that's the amount of money that has been pouring in now uh, from um being literally magicked up from nothing which is the central bank uh, uh, liquidity operations and also government government borrowing but lots of the government borrowing is going to come from their own central banks and and they're going to throw that into the hole but all that money printing and credit creation through banks um, really doesn't uh, create fundamental uh, economic growth. It 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 can create the uh, the the semblance of it, but in order to get fundamental economic growth, you need to get big improvements in productivity with workers. You need to get 
real invention going again. And this thing is going to cause that. I've no doubt about that. That's, but the, the new world order, uh, the new world that will emerge on the other side of the valley we're now going into, which is, I think, U-shaped, um, is that the, 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 that that new world uh, is going to be very different from the world that has gone before, where for the last 20 years, an awful lot of the money that was being made by the wealthy people was really being made sitting on their arse and their chairs, uh, moving around, uh, you know, getting money very cheaply from central banks at practically nothing and, and putting it into government bonds, putting it into property, uh, really not adding any any invention and just getting filthy rich. OK, well, can I just put in there, Eddie, one aspect to it. Let's just take this country, for instance. And now I, I noticed that you, you, you made a point of saying that uh, in a lot of respects, the global economy was going into a relatively poor place anyway, prior to this pandemic striking. But in the Irish economy, we were in relatively good shape going in. And therefore, would that not imply that once things get moving again, we should be able to um, get some way back on track? Well, yeah, I say that in the piece. I mean, where I mean, can you imagine um, COVID nineteen hitting in two thousand and seven, when we had, uh, you know, when we had the all of the, the you, you know, we were we were borrowed up to the hilt personally. Now, all of that, uh, all that personal uh, credit uh, has 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 halved or more than halved over the last uh, ten or eleven years. So we're actually in much better shape. Uh, our savings are better. Our overall personal credit, our debt levels are lower. Um, and then nationally, our accounts are in much better shape. So we should be able to uh, manoeuvre our way through this without without, get, without bailouts, for example. But I mean, it's going to be very bumpy because um, even though the ECB and the Fed and, and everybody else is throwing a huge sum of money into the hole, um, the, the facts of the matter are that you just don't switch off economies and switch them on again. Um, with, you know, there's going to be a lag in here. Uh, we know from the IMF, for example, they're predicting that by the end of this year, um, you know, with some kind of a recovery in economic growth in quarter three and quarter four, that by the end of this year, the average unemployment rate in Ireland will be 12%. And that by the end of next year, Mick, it will be 8% at the end of next year. That's in a year and a half's time. So like that is a very significant swing uh, from the unemployment rates we had coming into this when we were in very good nick. Now, I'm sure that if you extend it out in 2022 and 2023, we will be back to where we were. But 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 what's going to happen in the U, the low part of the U in between, is 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 what needs attention. So, for example, if you take the the backbone of the Irish economy, um, are the uh, are are all of those people about 1.1 million or so that are employed by SMEs throughout the length and breadth of Ireland? Uh, they, they, you know, they represent in most places in Ireland anywhere between 75% and 100% of the workforce in the private economy. Um, it's slightly lower in Dublin, um, but but outside of Dublin, it's 75% plus of the entire local private economy are employed by SMEs. Now, what's happening, uh, we know from the data that ISME have already collected, is that roughly around 11% have already ceased trading. And by the end of June, that will be there will be another 34% added to that number uh, and so the businesses will physically not exist unless they are saved. Uh, now, the workers are quite, quite correctly are being saved with um, uh, social protection payments and COVID payments. But the structures themselves are, are, are reliant on a total level of fiscal support from the government, which is actually roughly about 0.3% of our GNP. And you can compare that to fiscal stimuluses, for example, in Germany, 
and in America, which is 10% of their GDP. So, for example, the, the total amount of stuff available, and it's available in the form of loans, um, there's one scheme for 450 million and another scheme for 250 million. So that's 700 million. But the total value of our GNP or GDP is like a great many times that. So it's quite clear that the um, that th- the thought hasn't yet properly gone into towards doing that. And when we look at the rate of drawdown on those loans to try and keep these businesses alive, it's a trickle, like it's three, maybe four percent of, of, of firms are actually engaging with it. So so that needs attention. Now, one element to that, Eddie, sorry, that I, I have a very small bit of knowledge about. We have this Strategic Bank Corporation of Ireland, which is basically funds that are channeled through the mainstream banks to try and help small businesses, the SMEs you're talking about. I've come across people who are claiming that once they apply to the pillar banks, the so-called pillar banks, the big AIB Bank of Ireland, etc., that they encounter various forms of resistance to getting these loans. And there's a school of thought that suggests that these banks don't consider it worth their while to put in the effort, the paperwork, etc., all of that in order to give out relatively small loans to the type of companies you're talking about that keeps the country going. Is there anything in that? Well, absolutely. There's, that's the truth. Uh, in the piece that I wrote, uh, I was talking, for example, about the uh, the mortgage holiday. And I said, well, firstly, it wasn't a holiday. And secondly, it was being underwritten. It shouldn't have been. It should have been auto-enrollment. So in other words, you, you're given the money and it's up to you to say, look, you don't want it to give it back. You don't want the loan. And that's the way it should be done. There, there isn't time to underwrite uh, these situations. I mean, that's what bankers want. They want, to, uh, they want to put it into the opaque credit committees and they want to cluck over it. And um, look, the, the truth is that, they, that, that, that the banks are trying to defend their capital buffers and are going to drown the weakest amongst us, as they always do. And all of this talk about forbearance is very much a temporary situation. It is an iron rule of banking that this is what happened mm-hmm. and this is what will happen again. So those funds coming through the pillar banks are being let out in a lot of cases looking for personal guarantees. All of that kind of nonsense that needs to be blown away. Um, and uh, the way you do that is that, firstly, the, the, the scale of the funds that should be made available needs to be, I think, in the order of somewhere around 15 billion, not 700 million, and that it needs to be auto-enrollment for companies. So you need to do things like uh, any company can apply for the funds and get them immediately on foot of an accountant certificate. You just bypass the banks and draw the money down directly, and the accountant certificate would state that the loan that they're taking out is equivalent to three months' revenues from 2019, taking their strongest three months. And they'd simply take that as a loan at zero interest rates for the next two or three years to be repaid back from future cash flows. That's how you do it. You don't involve the pillar banks at all. And what would be the objection from the government's point of view to doing that, do you reckon? I don't know. Well, we're getting into a philosophical issue. I, I actually believe that at the centre of the inner state, uh, there, is a, there is a deep suspicion of the indigenous Irish business sector. And that's actually driving it. That they're far more concentrated on the, the foreign direct investment, big companies coming in and, and having big employment numbers, that sort of thing. Yeah, there's an, there's there's just an assumption that the, the indigenous Irish business sector is is something of, of a kind of necessary virus that we have to have in the economy. Geez, that's a very extreme outlook, I'd suggest, Eddie. Well, well, actually, it's it's borne out by the reaction. If you if you look at what happened after the the the, the, the global financial crisis, it took us five years to get a modern insolvency act in place. It came into place in December two thousand and twelve. It gave the 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 banks a veto over any settlement of people's debts, including business debts. 
And as a consequence of that, there are thousands of Irish families, business families included, who remain under the cosh of the same banks that we were just talking about 11 and 12 years after the event and will continue to do so at great cost to mental health and, uh, and, and contentment. And now that is not a modern insolvency system in operation. The Insolvency Act was brought in and written in a way which was to make sure it wouldn't work. I'm not saying that in hindsight. I made that point at the launch of the Act. And at the time, I remember asking uh, at the launch of the insolvency service itself, I asked the guy that was leading it. I said, have you had any discussions at all with the, uh, with the HSC on the mental health impacts of insolvency? And he looked at me as if I had two heads. That was in 2012. That was five years after the supernova from Lehman Brothers or four years after the supernova from Lehman Brothers. So like all of the numbers are there, you just have to open your eyes. So the very fact that the uh, that the government support is being pushed through the, the pillar banks to go through the bottleneck is 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 is, is, is a deliberate policy. Uh, the question is, is it is it is it is it done for malign reasons? Or is it done? Or is it done because of stupidity? No, I'd be in the latter camp. I just think it's a stupid way to do it. It's not big enough, and it's not being done properly. Right. And do you see any different role for the state in terms of um, sending the banks in a particular direction that's more directly helpful to people in attempting to get through what presumably will be a, a, an attempt at recovery coming up? Well, I do. I, I think that the um, I think that I think at the other side of all of this, one of the changes I hope to be writing about it again in the future, what the new world order will look like. But it's going to involve much bigger government involvement in all economies. In an, in an Irish context, uh, I mean, I think I think the I think the, the experiment with the with the pillar banks has failed. Uh, they failed in the global financial crisis, and I believe they they will fail again. I think this forbearance thing is just uh, masking what's really going to happen. And that you actually need to get state involvement. The state needs to um, maybe see AIB as the state-owned bank or else weaponize the Strategic uh, Bank Corporation of Ireland like, like we did in the old days with ICC and have it directly provide funds into indigenous Irish business. Uh, we, cannot, we, we simply cannot continue on the basis of the bottleneck that's there and the, 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 the demand for personal guarantees and all of the other uh, uh, torturous methods that we go through then when people miss payments and they come under the cash of of debt collectors and so on and vulture funds and I mean it's it's been it's been quite quite a disaster in my opinion uh, how the whole thing has been managed and um, and I mean if you look at the scale of the support for uh, SMEs um, when you consider that um, uh, you know that 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 ninety percent of SME employment is in firms with ten or less and that by the end of June between what's already gone and what's going to go nearly half of all those firms will have ceased to exist. And where is the voice? Where is the discussion about this? Okay, but can I put it another way to you? As you're suggesting, and I think others would suggest it all, so that it looks like we're going to have bigger government going into the future. And I think that is not a phenomenon that will be confined to this country. But in a previous existence, Eddie, you would have been pretty critical of the public sector and the way that things were being run. Therefore, do you have any reservations if we're going into a phase of bigger government? Well, actually, I, I've taken action on, on on the area in the last twelve months. Um, I originated and um, uh, and had produced um, um, quite a substantial paper by Professor Cal Muckley of UCD on how to uh, position Ireland to lead the world in the development of a social progress index. 
So this would be a counterbalance to GDP, which would measure at a detailed level the interface between Irish citizens and this and state services and score it. So much like inflation, it comes together from a whole load of sub-indices to do equality, health, mortality, um, et cetera, and uh, security. And uh, it comes together into one index so that if our GDP goes up by, say, 5%, but our, our SPI, Social Progress Index, is, is only gone up by 2 we're making a complete mess of it and, and, and vice versa. Now, that, so that, that paper has now been um, rubber stamped by ISME and, uh, and it's been very seriously uh, uh, considered by IBEC as part of their input into the discussions and the creation of the next government. And it forms the basis of how we could go about um, uh, bringing public services into, into the light of, um, of performance measurement for the benefit of everybody, including those uh, working in state services, rather than uh, continue on the way we were. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with having big government in an economy. I certainly don't have any ideological problems with that. Uh, it's big government without consequences, without measurement. Uh, that is the issue. Uh, and that has always been the issue. Right. And uh, you mentioned big government and new, new world order. And you, I think it's fair to say you flirted with politics there going back a few years in terms of the setting up of the party Renewa. In the political sphere, Eddie, how do you see this new world order? Well, it's a fascinating question. Um, uh, firstly, this thing has the seeds of causing revolutionary um uh, responses in many parts of the world, because there are large parts of the world, unlike where we are in the developed world, that simply don't have the institutions, neither do they have the sovereign debt borrowing strength to cope with what's coming. A lot of their foreign debt will be in dollars, so they're going to have a problem in servicing that. So I do see, I say it in the piece, I do see quite a few countries uh, requiring bailouts. Um, and in, within countries themselves, I think, firstly, all our eyes should be on Europe. And, and how Europe deals with the strain. So um, uh, Christine Lagarde today in the IMF basically saying what Draghi said in 2012, it was one of those moments where we said, we're, we're going to do whatever's necessary uh, in order to save the banks, in order to uh, provide enough liquidity, in other words, to keep the financial system running. But remember, the financial system running um, reasonably well in, in isolation from politics not working properly uh, at EU level, where, uh, you know, where once again, uh, there is a split in Europe between um, northern, some of the northern, northern countries and southern countries, the, the, the creditor nations and debtor nations split. All that needs to be tackled. And that's the real, uh, that's going to be the real test. Now, I think Europe will come through it. I think we'll hang together because we, we simply cannot separate. I mean, it's, it would be, it would be crazy. I mean, we've three major regions in the world, three major power, economic powers, China, uh, Europe and, um, and the United States at the moment. And the idea that Europe could splinter and and that somehow uh, maintain its uh, sort of uh, its its position on the pitch, of course, is is utter nonsense. And that's why uh, what the British have done exposes them. I mean, they would be the one country in, in our area that would be would be very exposed. But I mean, Australia, for example, is is an OECD country that is going into this problem, and they manage the health side of it. it seems to be particularly well, but they're going into this problem with a substantial um, housing bubble and bank and bank bubble. And in, in terms of that order, I mean, we've seen particularly with the um, presidency of Donald Trump, different attitudes towards world trade and free trade, irrespective of the fate of Trump in the next election. Would you see in, in, in the wake of the pandemic uh, a move away from free trade globally? Um, 
Yes, uh, but not because of him. No, he is. Um, God, we could talk about Trump all day. I mean, I. I, I produced a song about Trump. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know that. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I went down to Ocean Studios um, uh, uh, there down in uh, down in the Sheepshead Peninsula a couple of years ago. And we produced, we re- and got permission, and uh, we redid the Langer song about Trump right. with, with with modern political lyrics. It's all you get it on YouTube. I'll check so, that out. Yeah, yeah. yeah so I mean, uh, so my position on Trump's been pretty clear. I did something about it. Oh yeah, no, only he, he, he's just symbolic of what's happening. I'm just wondering in terms of people's attitudes and that following the pandemic. Trump, yeah, Trump is Trump is an economic nationalist, old style. Yeah, and um, and 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 not a very elegant one in terms of his thinking. Which not he has no elegant thinking, as you know. So I mean, I think he's in ser- serious trouble uh, politically uh, uh, for the next election, but you know that remains to be seen. But the real question is, what will, how will politics look, and and it's going to vary from country to country. But one thing is clear: the uh, the global supply chains that have built up under globalization um, uh, failed to deal with the global pandemic. Uh, shortages of 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 absolutely essential medical equipment. All that type of thing clearly shows it has failed. So I think that supply chains are going to narrow dramatically uh, after the global pandemic. I think they'll be much more regional. There'll be shorter supply chains, um, and and that's that's going to have an effect. I also think that um, I think that uh, that the wealthy uh, are going to uh, just going to have to cough up an awful lot more. Uh, I don't think there's going to be any tolerance uh, for the continuation of, for example, companies. That have um, whose overall holding company is in a tax haven, uh, looking for government money. I don't think that's going to happen. The Danes have led led, led the charge on that, um, and um, I also think that there will be complete intolerance towards you know wealthy billionaires um, writing or making comments or, or having political input or economic input into countries' policies from, from their offshore havens. I can think of a few people you might have in mind there, but we won't mention any names. No, no, I think I think that's that that will change. I think that uh, there's going to be a significant increase in um, uh, power, uh, let's call it political power, uh, amongst the, the masses of workers without using, you know, old terms. And, um, and, and that's going to be healthy, provided it's in the hands of a political caste uh, that can deal with it. And that's why I talk about in the piece about radical centralism, that, that what we need to see is radical thinkers, radical movers um, at, at the middle of politics, not on the extremes. If the middle fails, then the, the extremes left and right come in, grab the microphone and off we go following some Pied Piper left or right uh, into into serious trouble. And just, just taking it back home for a minute, the politically here and where we might go here, like the centre, a lot of people would suggest, is relatively crowded. You were involved in the establishment of Renewa, which was certainly perceived as being a, a, a right-wing party, perhaps economically, and some would say socially in that in other ways. But do you see a role for somebody moving that's on the, on the right of the centre? Would you see a role for a new party of any sort there? Or is there, is there a gap in the market there? No, I don't think so. I think it's I think it's a question of radical centralism. I, I, I genuinely think that. Um, I think that because, you know, you can have all of these philosophies, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to turn to credit markets to get your money, and and credit markets will uh, will be will, will be pretty brutal towards extreme uh, regimes, whether they're left or right. They simply won't give it to them, or if they do give it to them, they'll give it to them at extremely high prices, 
And if they don't give it to them, then these regimes will turn towards our central bank and instruct, you know, instruct them to print the money and then you incinerate your currency. We've seen that in Venezuela. We saw it in Zimbabwe. We saw it in Germany way back during the Weimar days uh, uh, and, and so on. So I think that's where it will end up. I would have concerns. Uh, I don't think now is the time to be um, Jesus, just, just in the middle of an economic depression, basically, to be, uh, to be tying around with um, uh, carbon taxes. I think, God, like, come on, guys, like, like, get the timing right, you know? Well, you, well, hold on, Eddie, you know, you, you say that, get the timing right, but the timing, unfortunately, apart from the, the, the recession of the pandemic, is totally against us in terms of, of the climate and the planet. Well, it depends on who you read about that, you know. Um, but, I mean, look, obviously there's global warming. I mean, I, 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 I'm not suggesting there isn't. I'm just simply saying that how we go about implementing um, a, a plant, plant, plant food taxation is something that needs to be very carefully considered because we're going to be stretched to deal with the economic concept and trying to get the economy going again. And I don't think in the middle of getting the economy going again, uh, we should be increasing the tax base that, that you know, on, on the ordinary uh, worker. Uh, obviously, we need to be examining other forms of taxation, but those that actually hit people who are trying to, who, who are literally on uh, on unemployment benefit, who are um, who are on low wages in, in struggling SMEs trying to recover, um, it, the, the timing would be poor. In that vein, I wonder, do you think there's any role for the type of, cost base that would seem to be increased in terms of the, the the sort of green agenda that's being put forward by some parties. I mean, some people, for instance, are suggesting that you have carbon taxes, but you devise a system whereby those who are least well off are not hit hardest and they're getting some kind of a refund. Is that a bit convoluted, do you reckon, at this particular time? No, I mean, like like all of those schemes obviously have to be finely tuned through the process of debate and all the rest of it. I'm just talking about timing. I just think that no is not no is not the time to be doing something like that. Um, uh, perhaps in two thousand and twenty-two, uh, but certainly not over the next year and a half. I just think it would be it would send completely the wrong signal through the economy. No, there are parts of the green agenda that could be done. Uh, for example, the um, uh, the investment, as I would see, a positive investment in improving insulation. Um, uh, that 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 gives quite a good return. Um, but but when you're getting down to charging people uh, who can't afford to uh, upgrade their cars because they don't have the money, who are locked out of credit because credit is tightened for the aforementioned reasons in the banks, uh, and, and you're saying to them that uh, they're, they're, they're going to get penalised uh, somewhat for continuing to hold on to their, their, old, their old vehicles. Uh, I, I don't think that's the way to go. I think it sends the wrong signal, um, and, and, it will be, and it will be resisted. You know, it, it, it just will. You know, the pe- people aren't... Yeah. Uh, People aren't going to put up with it. When, when, when it comes down to pound shillings and pence and they don't have it, uh, we've seen that happen with the water uh, protest. Uh, so just watch that space. It's not as straightforward as people think. While we're on that those kind of issues, Eddie, what's your opinion in terms of raising the pension age and the, the, the science behind it is quite obvious in terms of the demographics and how they're going to change? Etc. But what do you think of, of the various positionings of the parties on that issue? Well, firstly, I think that the whole auto enrolment thing is going to have to be delayed because employers are, are will be barely, you know, they're just not ready for auto enrolment. When you say auto enrolment, no, could you just what, what is that exactly? Auto enrolment is a great. Okay, well, okay, pensions. Um, firstly, uh, only seven percent of the private economy workforce have pensions. Not half, seven. Pensions being guaranteed payments at retirement age. Of the remaining, 92% have 
half of those have some kind of savings in the pensions area, but they're not pensions. They're, they're funds that are building up. They're not guaranteed anything. And over half of all private workers have nothing at all saved. Those that have something saved have inadequate savings. So there's obviously an issue. And the only way through it, outside of um, um, trying to force people who don't have the money to create the money to put it into pensions on an auto-enrollment basis, in other words, where you're, you're automatically enrolled into a pension scheme and you have to, you have to fight your way out of it, is to is to significantly uh, reform our old age pension system or our our whole approach to PRSI and and to ask ourselves is if we really do want to have um, a proper um, safety limit for people who fall out of the workforce or are unemployed and to get them back into the workforce and if we really do want to have um, dignity in retirement we're going to have to pay for it and we pay for it through PRSI in other words you're looking at significant increases in social insurance payments uh, in return for significant increases in benefits. And what about the age at which people did, that it should kick in now? Should that be raised in your opinion? Well, I mean, it's part, uh, that's a, yeah, the answer is it probably should, it's part of, but, but it's part of an overall, um, an overall integrated plan. Um, it could be, it could be raised, um, but, you know, we were just looking at it as, as one bit item in a much bigger, more complex uh, uh, thing that needs to be addressed. But I don't yeah. think I don't think pensions uh, raising the pensions ages is, is is actually the 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 real political challenge we face. I think the challenge we face is going to be how we deal with the um how we deal with these the I think I think our skills in Europe are going to really be tested um and, and we're, we're very good at that thanks be to god um and and just trying to keep Europe um coherent and and also our ability to cope with the extra debt that we have to uh, add on to our, our national finances, and then our ability to um, to remain coherent, which we didn't do the last time. We 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 allowed a situation to occur where there was a certain um, protection given to the inner state, uh, while the outer state was thrown to the wolves. I mean, that's what happened. And do you see the same thing happening again? Well, I hope not. Are you confident it won't happen again? Uh, no, I'm not at all confident it won't happen again, at all. Uh, because the outer ring of the inner state uh, are the very people that are actually um, sitting around the table as we speak, planning the uh, planning the rules around all of this. And they, and they typically dominate the panel discussions in RTE. When you say that, like, who, who exactly? I don't mean in, not names, Eddie, but are you referring to politicians or? No, the outer state are those people that are employed in the universities on the state payroll. To, uh, to 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 come out and um, and 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 um, and create the doctrine um, to fill to fill the panels, but I mean they've been completely absent. They were absent before the global financial crisis in terms of predicting it, and they've and they've been absent at the early stages of the pandemic crisis, where their voice. They, but but they will come out as soon as there's any question of um, of a challenge to the. Uh, to the privileges of the inner state at the upper levels of pay. Well, you're suggesting there, Eddie, that this, if you want to call it a commentariat or, or perhaps the academic commentariat, that um, ideologically, perhaps because they're employed by universities, they're all very much biased towards the public sector. No, I mean, they'll just defend the state. They'll, they'll defend the establishment because they're, because they're part of it. I mean, that's just human nature. But we have to recognise that. I mean, look, if we're going to, uh, if, we, if we really want to try and, and, and develop a strong and healthy indigenous Irish economy, you're going to need far more people from the indigenous healthy Irish economy in those positions, on those panels, making those, challenging those, you know, uh, opinions and having that type of debate. 
but they're, think, not, yeah. they're not there. I mean, look, the, the very fact that the total level of of support packages, which have come in the form of two loans, uh, subject to terms and conditions, uh, which amount to 700 million euros, uh, is very telling. It's very telling about the attitude towards the indigenous Irish business sector. Yeah, there is. That, that, that is definitely a subject for debate. And I couldn't agree more with you in terms of the... Um the the breadth of, of of knowledge and the um the type of, that people should be drawn from every sector in terms of if you're going to make those kind of those kind of decisions, Eddie. Like a lot of people, just your, your, yourself, you had your ups and downs in terms of investments. People went through an awful lot of that over the course of the property bubble and the aftermath. There was very high profile vehicle Brendan investments, of which I suppose it's fair to say you were the public face at one stage. And an awful lot of people lost a lot of money on that. How did you come out of it? Did you feel bruised after it? Well, it was uh, look. Firstly, for the um, uh, for the for those people, look, there, there was there was about seven hundred people. Average investment of around eleven thousand each um, suffered greatly because of that. Um, it collapsed about two years ago. I, I exited the board five years ago. Um, and it shouldn't have happened um, at all. Uh, there were some bad decisions made. I've no doubt about that. And I have to. I, I was. I was a non-executive director on the board that made certain decisions. So I, I you know, I'm collective responsibility, etc. Uh, and of course, like billions were lost, obviously. But I mean, it could have been done better. Um, the uh, and 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 you know, from, you know, from my perspective, um, sorry, people who were listening to this is quite clear. Like I actually lost more. Um, than any single person in that whole venture by 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 some considerable margin. So it's been difficult. Uh, it's been torturous um, uh, as a consequence of that. I can only look back on all of the things that I, I got right. Um, so you know the uh, you know the, the the writing and presentation of Rip Off Republic in two thousand five, which you know described the Irish um, development sector as eating its young. Uh, that type of thing. Um, I in two thousand and six, I published a book, and in it I was predictive of of the glo- of of a global problem. Uh, I t- I said, look, bring your debt down to half your property values as soon as you can. Buy gold, get out of equities, buy bonds, etc. It's all there in black and white. And then in, and so people don't think that I'm some kind of a, a chicken licking going around, you know, looking for signs of the world falling. And like my job is to look at the economic linkages. And in um, February 2009 on Morning Ireland, uh, sorry, on TV 3am, uh, in the middle of the gloom, uh, the world was falling apart. I was saying, look, we're weeks away from a massive recovery in the US stock market. Uh, for, and I was outlining the reasons for that. And, uh, and, and that would be followed by a dramatic economic recovery. And that's what happened. The, the, the bounce, the actual end of the, uh, the, the, the trough in the stock market was around April 2009. And then in 2017, I published a book called The Pivot. Because I've been writing and to clients as well as in newspapers, including and, the Examiner, about the global financial system and saying, look, the, all of the debt that's built up, um, it's not looking good. And in 2019, uh, you know, I was again sounding the warning about the uh, the, the shape of the bond curve and um, uh, the, the signals were that there was an inbound recession. And do you could I ask Eddie? Do you, do you think your reputation suffered as a result of the fallout from Brendan Investments? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's no doubt about it, because, I mean, look, the media went to town as they do, even though the size of the fund, which is very modest in comparison to the billions that were lost by the uh, the doyens of the Irish financial industry, uh, was lost. Uh, you know, all that detail was lost. And, uh, you know, it was a good story. I know that. And um, it was very difficult. And of course, it was very damaging. 
I mean, absolutely. And would you see yourself on something of a comeback? Are you hopeful for the future? Oh, you mean personally? No, yeah. look, look, no, look. I mean, I had a choice. I mean, uh, you know, if, on the on the base, there's a certain there's a certain cohort, obviously, in Ireland that that take a particular view when it comes to Indigenous Irish business people, um, which is a quite satisfaction when when they fail, and and that that's just our nature. That that exists and it permeates political theatre as well as it permeates some parts of the media. Now, I fell flat on my face. Uh, there's no doubt about that because I mean, reputationally, that was a very very difficult and still is a difficult. Uh, issue for me and um, but like my choices like I have very good record uh, behind me and in front of me as far as I'm concerned so my choice is I could go down to the uh, to the barn with the with with with, uh, with a bottle of whiskey and the shotgun or I could get up off my ass and continue to do what I've always done which is to seek to call it as I see it and uh, and, and hope that um that's that that's that a certain amount of people um are um you know grown up enough to see uh, to see that issue for what it was Absolutely fair enough, Eddie, and hopefully you'll be there calling it for some time to come. And I think we're going to require a few people to be calling it for the next few years because we're going into a turbulent period, there's no doubt. Eddie Hobbs, thank you very much for joining us today. That's it for today, folks. Now, for a change, we're going to sign off with a song. And that is the song that Eddie spoke about there, the one he was involved in writing, which is about the great Donald Trump. And the song is appropriately called Trump's a Langer. It was recorded by Graham Mills on vocals and Claire Sands on violin. Uh, before launching into that, I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for tuning in. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, all the usual platforms. You can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. See you soon. Keep the head up. Things will only get better. He tweets Donald Trump Some awful old junk Roaring and bawling And spewing and spout First on the news There's his big orange snout No, we're dead right To call Trump a langer A langer A langer We're dead right to call On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. 
feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are like interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.